This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 28, Episode 14. Coming up on this show, we've got the mind echoes of the stage psychic, the Connecticut missing persons cover-up, and James Fox joins us to discuss his new film, Moment of Contact. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. Some really great stuff coming up towards the end of the show, but this interview, I've been looking forward to this for a really long time. We've been lining it up for a little while, and we had James Fox on the show a couple of years ago now. Yeah, about two years ago. Fantastic to have you back. This new documentary is one of the best I've seen in a long time. Yeah, the phenomenon was great too. Back in uh, 2020, we had James on the show and the phenomenon was very well received, uh, had amazing reviews. And it was one of those films that had a big crossover into the the audience that isn't necessarily across the the whole UFO lore from decades. It, It really had this great reach in the mainstream. And yeah, you're right. This new one, Moment of Contact, which has the kind of subtitle, The Roswell of Brazil. But I do say in the interview, it leaves the Roswell case for dead. Yeah. It is such an incredible case. This is from the Virginia case in Brazil in 1996. Crash sources, there's extraterrestrials, captured ET bodies. It's absolutely incredible. And James does such a good job uh, laying out the story, building the story. Uh, and he's so fun to talk to as well. So we're really looking forward to uh, sharing this interview with you with James Fox. The film Moment of Contact comes out on the 18th, I believe. But you'll be able to find it on pretty much every streaming platform, right? It's going to be everywhere. That's right, everywhere. We might play you just a little snippet of audio from the trailer and then we'll roll into the interview. Let's take a listen. In 1996, the people of Virginia, Brazil, witnessed a UFO event that would change their lives forever. Followed another Roswell, if you will. It is a crashed vehicle that had beings on board. Mas que eles não poderiam admitir a verdade. A população ia entrar em colapso. Nada temos a esconder. Finally, the facts will be revealed. The Virginia case is considered the most well-kept secret in the military circles of Brazil. My objective here is to put some clarity on what took place in Virginia, Brazil, January 1996. That's James there. I thought I'd cut the trailer short because the rest of it's in Portuguese. Subtitled. <laughs> it doesn't really go too well. But uh, here's our interview with James. We hope you enjoy it and make sure you check out the film Moment of Contact. Well, 
welcoming to the show today uh, one of our favourite directors, James Fox. He's here to talk about the new film, Moment of Contact. Thanks for joining us, James. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure to have you back. Of course, we had you in late 2020 with The Phenomenon, which we thoroughly enjoyed. Critically, very well received. Uh, everyone loved that film. And I've got to say... He's done it again. Aaron and I just finished Moment of Contact. <laughs> We're absolutely blown away, James. The way that you put these together is is really, I've got to say, masterful. And we're saying that, I probably said this about the previous film as well, but we've been researching UFOs for, what, 15 years now and longer personally, and we've seen countless UFO documentaries. And and when I hear there's a new documentary on the scene discussing UFOs, it's kind of like, okay, well, what what else can we say? Like, what's new? But you take this Brazilian case and the way that the layering, the way the information comes in, by about 20 minutes in, I was convinced this was going to be the best UFO documentary I'd ever seen. And I think it's exceptional. I dare say it is. It is absolutely incredible. So well done. Well, thank you, guys. You know, it's a real pleasure to hear you say that because I didn't believe this case for well over a decade. and. I catered it to my incredulous, I guess, my level of disbelief in the first place. Because if you look at the credits, it's funny at the end, I credit a couple of people that actually had nothing to do with the production of the film. Oh, right. <laughs> but, but who had planted the seed back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I was doing, I think, out of the blue at the time. I mean, I was making a documentary on UFOs when I learned about this case. And I just thought, there's no way that a UFO crashed and the alleged aliens, beings, survived and were walking around the town in broad daylight. That's just, I, I'm sorry, but I just can't believe that. Well, let's talk about exactly what you focused on for the film, because it's the moment of contact, the Roswell of Brazil. And this is a, a case that occurred back in 1996. It's allegedly a UFO crash in the city of, is it pronounced Virgin, Virginia? Virginia. So run us through this famous case and some of the elements that, that made it stand out to you. Why is this such an important case? Well, to be honest with you, when I started investigating this case about 11, 12 years ago, um, I did it quite reluctantly at the behest of a, of a gentleman, actually I could say his name, is Jeff Zagansky, who uh, is very high up in the entertainment industry here in the United States. And he and I have been friends for quite some time. He's been a big proponent of transparency on the UFO topic. Uh, he's been a follower of my work, and he's been very helpful sort of behind the scenes, uh, place my films in, in, at different networks over the decades. And um, he heard that I was going to Brazil, I think it was like back in 2011, and I'd heard about this case prior to that, but I dismissed it so quickly, I refused to even look into it because I thought this is no way this happened and the whole world wouldn't know about it. And when I, I went to Brazil, completely unrelated, I was just giving a presentation at a conference in a place called Peruíbe. Funny enough, it's, uh, there's an island off the coast of Peruíbe and I was there with Stanton Friedman. And on this island uh, are these very deadly snakes that are only found in one place, uh, for, far as I know, uh, in the world, and that's just off the coast of Peruíbe. And uh, apparently there's these poachers. The venom is worth quite a bit of money, and these poachers would come and try to 
I guess, poach the snakes and the snakes would drop out of the trees and bite these poachers and, and they would die. And so apparently the, the island is littered with dead poach, poachers. I like the start of this story. So I'm on this I snake know. island with Stanton Friedman with these poisonous killer snakes. <laughs> well, you can see the island from Beruibi, but I didn't actually go to the island. Okay. But, but anyway, so I was there in Beruibi with Stanton. And um, just a couple of days prior to leaving, my friend Jeff Sagansky said, oh, my God, you're going to Brazil. You have to look into Virginia. And I said, uh, OK, refresh my memory a bit. And he said, you know, the one, the UFO crash. And I said, oh, sure, sure, Jeff, I'll, I'll look into that. And I had absolutely no intention of looking into it when I went there. But during this conference, I met some researchers and a couple of witnesses, just coincidentally. And um, I guess it piqued my interest to the point where I thought, well, I might come back and dig a little deeper. And the storyline is like this. On or around the 12th of January, 1996, there was a gentleman named Carlos de Souza, and he was an ultralight pilot, and he was driving very early in the morning from Sao Paulo up to the state of Minas Gerais. Virginia is in that, in that state to meet with some people to go do his ultralight flying. The sun was just coming up. It was dawn. And he saw an object that was in distress, uh, driving on the freeway, again, very, very early in the morning. And uh, he th thought to himself, maybe it was some sort of government prototype of some unknown thing. Never in a million years did he think it was uh, extraterrestrial in origin. And, and it was having trouble, and it appeared to have gone down behind a hill uh, as he was witnessing this on, on the freeway. So he was thinking to himself, well, clearly the pilots are in trouble. I'm going to go see if I can help out. And when he arrived on the scene, he took a little dirt road off the freeway, and there was a Maiolini farm, is what it was called, and uh, he came upon couple football fields of debris of metallic looking material with one piece of the craft still intact that described about the size of a small house and the shape of a cigar but that was intact and then there was a field of debris he leaped out of the car and, and he said that the the smell was and i don't know how much detail you want me to go in here but the smell was just overbearing of like sulfur and yeah uh, like an ammonia? Yeah, exactly. Sulfur and ammonia. And he said to the point where he had to grab his T-shirt and cover his, his nose and mouth. And uh, he picked up some of this debris, a piece of this debris. And he said it was light as a feather. You could barely feel it in your hands, almost like, like tinfoil. And he crumpled it up and it regained its, when he released it, it regained its form. And, you know, he was quite shocked by that aspect of it. And uh, just when this was happening, the military arrived and uh, at gunpoint forced him out of there. Just prior to that, there were a couple of farmers that also saw a similar craft with a gaping hole in the side of it and white smoke kind of coming out the back. And exactly seven days later, about 12 to 15 miles away in the town of Virginia, people in the town, both civilian and military and firemen claimed to have seen creatures with brown oily skin, big red eyes, bulbous big heads, spindly arms and legs, quite weak, feeble, afraid, 
apparently the the creatures were captured. Well, yeah, I mean that's that's the elements that make it stand out as something incredible. I mean, this is not just a UFO sighting. This is not only just a, a crash, which is incredible in itself, a very rare thing to happen in UFO cases, but eyewitnesses seeing the the entities as well. One quick question: How far is where Carlos saw the crashed? craft to the city. How far away is that? It was roughly 12 to 15 miles. Now he saw it on the morning of the 12th of January. The beings were witnessed in the town of Virginia, roughly 15 miles away, uh, seven days later on the 20th. So they must have, they made it on foot (laughs) if they have feet. (laughs) So much speculation as to how that happened. Uh, And I, and I can't seem to get it straight. That was one of the parts of the film that I, I, I just wasn't able to explain adequately and how they got from the crash site to there. So there are some researchers that speculated that there was an escape pod, but others, there's a body of water, a river that goes from that location into the town of Virginia that perhaps they, they, were, they went in the water somehow, but we really don't know. And you say you've been researching this case for over a decade and that the film's just, I mean, the film's coming out on the 18th. What made this the right time to put all this together? I mean, why why now? Why has this all kind of come together as the, the, the moment to tell this story? Well, there's a couple things I want to share with your audience. Uh, one is a meeting that I had with a Brazilian Air Force brigadier. I guess it would be a brigadier general. We met with him probably on my second trip, probably in 2014, Jose Carlos Pereira. And he agreed to do an interview regarding UFOs overall in in Brazil, but he was adamant that we didn't on camera bring up the Virginia case. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Yeah, so this is in 2014. I have photographs of this meeting. And at the end of the interview, we walked him to his car. He had a driver waiting. And both my friend Marco Leal and myself, fellow Brazilian UFO researcher, literally were on our hands and knees begging him (laughs) to talk about this case. And I promised him, I remember saying, I guarantee you uh, on my life, I have no recording devices. The cameras aren't rolling. Please, please tell us about Virginia. And he looked at us as he got into the car with his driver behind the wheel. Before he closed the door, he sat down in in the back seat and he looked at Marco and myself and he said, it happened. And he closed the door and off they went. So that was kind of like off the record, a level of validation that I had quite early on investigating the case. Again, I think it was like 12, 2013, 2014. And it kept the case alive for me. And I intended on putting this case as one of many featured in the phenomenon, which came out at the end of 2020. And I... I edited segments, five-minute segments, 10-minute segments. And at the end of the day, and I spent six months, I had translators, and I just deleted it all. And I said, there's just no, there's just no room for this case. It's too complex. I can't squeeze it in, this, in the phenomenon, and I yeah. deleted it. It deserves its own film, absolutely. And so in the back of my mind, I was thinking, my God, all the research and all the trips and all the investigations and... Ah, none of it made it in the phenomenon. And I and Marco, my my fellow Brazilian researcher, he's more like a brother to me now. 
he was devastated. He said, my God, he, of course, he loved the phenomenon, but he said, what happened? Why isn't Varginia in there? I said, Marco, I couldn't do it. It was just, Varginia is a very complex story, and just try to squeeze it into 10 minutes, it just didn't, it wouldn't happen. It, it couldn't fit. So uh, in between projects, I committed to putting out a doc on this case alone. We're glad you did. <laughs> We're really glad you did. Yeah, and, and so I went back to Varginia, and Marco's been boots on the ground. Uh, he deserves a tremendous amount of credit. And he was diligently going to Virginia time after time after time for years and uh, trying to gain trust and access to different witnesses. And a lot of them took, you know, 10, 5, 10 years. So I went, we went back last year and we spent a, a full month filming and, uh, and magic happened. And we made Moment of Contact. And Moment of Contact, the title, I never have a title for a film I do. It always sort of comes to me. And I was in the field interviewing the three young women that came within eight to 10 feet of this being in broad daylight. And I was interviewing them at the exact location of where this encounter occurred. And I said in the field, during that moment of contact, and that was the point in which they stopped the creature looked at them, they made eye contact, and that was the moment of contact. And I caught that in the editing room and I thought, you know what, that's a good title, I'm going with it. And this interaction with the witnesses is truly what makes this film, because you've got these people that were intimately involved in this case. And I want to go back to Carlos D'Souza in a moment and, and what he described, but with those girls that you just mentioned. So there were three girls that were involved in this. Can you describe what they saw, where they were, and also the connection that they seemingly had with this being, because they described the being as being frightened, seemingly so. So they were taking a bit of a shortcut on their way back to the house. It was Katya, Valkyria, and Liliani. Two of the sisters were Valkyria and Liliani, and Katya was 21, who was a little bit older. I think uh, Valkyria was 14, Liliani was 16 and Katya was 21. And they were taking a bit of a shortcut through this field about three o'clock in the afternoon, maybe 3.30 p.m., uh, very hot, sunny, you know, afternoon. And um, there was a tall, slightly tall grass in this area. And there was some graffiti on a cinder block wall that kind of caught their eye. And they were looking at this and they noticed what initially they thought might have been a statue. It was an unrecognizable being frozen uh, right up against this cinder block wall. And it had um, brown oily skin that would glint in the sunlight. And uh, they were looking at this thing. They slowed down, they stopped, they were all looking at it. And one of them, I think, screamed, sort of screeched in horror. And as she did so, the creature turned its head, it didn't get up, it was kind of slouched down, turned its head and looked right at them. And again, it was eight to 10 feet away. And Katya froze in her tracks, Liliani and Valkyria, the two sisters, ran off and realized about 100 feet to 150 feet down that they'd forgotten Katya. Katya was frozen making eye contact with this being. Later, I found out that the being was basically 
asking for, this is what they interpreted the look was, uh, that it was weak, it was feeble, it was scared, it wanted help. And um, Liliani, who was 16, ran back and grabbed Katya and ripped her out of there. But it was asking for help, according to Katya. And much like Carlos, they described the same kind of sulfur ammonia smell, didn't they? Very much so, yes. And so this encounter occurred. The girls ran back to their mother's house, told them what had happened, said they thought they saw the devil. So the mother said, come on, let's let's go back to see if it's still there. And the two sisters wanted nothing to do with going back to location. So the older one, Katya, and the mother went back. And th- that smell, the, the bean was gone. There was a footprint that the mother saw and describes in the film. But the smell was was overwhelming. In fact, it stayed in their nose, their their throat yeah. for days. Yeah, she said she had to wash it out with alcohol and, and water. But that smell, that permeating smell, comes up at multiple other points throughout this documentary with other witnesses. You can see the connections. But something that Carlos de Souza described when he went to the crash site was that there was burnt grass and like a, a chemical of some kind that was of 40 meters in diameter that was around this this crash craft. Yeah, because I asked him, I, he said everything was kind of burned. And I said, burned from what? From a fire? He said, no, like a chemical. Like there was some kind of fluid that came out of this craft that that was the, that, that really intense smell that, that affected all the grass and plants and, and that sort of thing. I have to ask you actually about Carlos because... In the documentary, you showed that very quickly after this event happened in 1996, he did one recorded interview where he described what he saw. And then you said that he disappeared for 26 years. Yeah. How did you find him? So I remember back in 2014, I had seen some very degraded, grainy video footage that was taken by a guy named Claudio Covo, who was a very famous Brazilian UFO researcher. He was also an engineer. But the quality was terrible. I mean, it was unusable. And I said to Marco, I said, Marco, this guy's the key. We've got to find Carlos. And I think uh, in 2014, Marco set out along with a couple of of his fellow uh, Brazilian researchers. And I think it took them six years to locate Carlos. They did. And then about another year to convince him to come forward and meet with me. And there are a lot of people that seem to be scared. There's a lot of people that just don't want to talk about this. This is an element that I'm always reluctant to to share because it sounds just crazy. But I have heard about these uh, so-called, I hate to use the word men in black because it's got a lot of baggage, but men in suits that show up, more compelling cases uh, all around the world. And I'd heard these accounts from military generals and um, Belgium and France, uh, Iran, England, the United States, uh, dating back decades. And I just simply couldn't swallow it. I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. I, I never reported on any of it. If you look at any of my previous documentaries, and I've got plenty, I never mentioned them, even though I'd heard about them, because I just couldn't process. I just thought that I, I, I couldn't believe these guys existed. Now, when I got to South America, the mother of the of the two children that witnessed the bean talked about these men in suits that showed up at her house. And they were very, um, I wouldn't say threatening, but 
intimidating. And she described them as foreigners, said that, that one of them was from the United States, and then they had, I think, translators, and that they were very forceful. They had a briefcase full of money to have her daughters to say the whole thing was made up. What they saw was, was something else. It was a lie, a fabrication, and uh, she refused. And they were quite forceful, and eventually she threatened to call the police, and they left. And that was a bit of a turning point for me. I thought, my gosh, I just, I can't imagine this woman is lying. I, I just simply, everything about her was was authentic. I think she's amazing, this yeah, woman. She's, she's incredible. Clearly very strong. And the fact that they had a suitcase full of money. Well, the other element in that case, which I thought was just weird, was that not only did they offer her this suitcase of money, they also said, you can't spend it inside Brazil. Yeah, she had to leave Brazil, yeah. So Carlos described uh, a, somewhat of a similar encounter with men in suits, and they caught up with him at a, at a gas station. He was gathering his senses and having a coffee and trying to process what just had happened. And uh, that when an unmarked car came up and, and men in suits came out, polished, very tidy, they knew his family, his name, where he lived, all about him, his daughter, and um, quite threatening. They said you didn't see anything. And they said to him, they things said to him weird. something along the lines of, uh, things if, are going to get weird. Yeah, things are going to get weird for you if you talk. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. We need to establish what happened after the girls. So uh, about approximately three hours after the, the young women see this entity, uh, this is where the case just really steps up to the next level uh, because we have military officers, Brazilian military police capturing it. Tell yes. us how this scenario took place. And I, I was quite confused as to what these military officers were doing in the area in the first place. Why were they there? So for the first time ever, we used a drone to document, obviously, from the air, uh, where these different encounters, both with creature and with military blockades, took place. And it's all within a certain proximity. Oh, I see. Uh, five, six, seven blocks. So we have witnesses with military blockades, very threatening, armed military, forcefully refusing anyone, including the media, to come in. Just a few blocks away, we've got the encounter with the girls at around 3, 3.30 p.m. And then about 5.30, 6 o'clock p.m. that night, there were two men on patrol. And these men, military officers, had absolutely no idea about a UFO crash or anything, they were just told that be on the lookout for something strange or unusual. They might have been a creature, something like this. It was Eric Lopes was the driver and Marco Cherizzi. Uh, they were both childhood friends. They're both the military police. And um, Eric Lopes was driving. Marco was in the passenger seat. And just a few blocks away from the girl's alleged encounter, uh, they came upon uh, a strange creature, being, whatever you want to call it, kind of crossing the road right in front of them. Eric slammed the brakes on. Marco leaped out, grabbed this thing with his bare hands. It was quite feeble, didn't put up much of a fight. 
put it in the back seat, and uh, and they took it to the local hospital. Incredible, incredible! It's incredible that they and it was, took it to the hospital. It was oily as well, wasn't it? It was oily, and that substance got all over him, all over him. And and actually, I didn't put this in the movie, but they actually went to a smaller clinic, and the doctor, I guess, who was running the clinic, came out and said, "What the hell is?" What do you have? What is this? Get it out of here. I don't, I don't want anything to do with this. So they went to another hospital, which was uh, Regionus, Hospital Regionus. And that scent was permeating his clothes, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, and, and he got like a, they, they think it maybe might have either bitten him or scratched him when he grabbed it. And he had a cut on his shoulder. Uh. And um, apparently he came, he went home that night and he rubbed himself down with rubbing alcohol. And uh, and he just got that smell and that oil on him and just couldn't get it off. And uh, within a few weeks, he came down with a, an, uh, an infection. Uh, he was admitted to the hospital. We actually interviewed the, 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 the doctor who, I couldn't believe it, this doctor, Cesario, actually went on camera for the first time for us. To, I couldn't believe it. So this never happened before. But I don't know, maybe he wanted to get it off his chest. And... Um, he said that he never in his 20-plus uh, years prior to this incident, 20-plus years after this incident, seen anything like it. Marco got this infection from an unknown something, and he pumped him full of every type of different antibiotic. Nothing worked, and he died. Well, his immune system collapsed. His immune system collapsed. He was 23 years old, perfectly healthy. And then you have this interview with Marco's uh, sister, um, yes. Eventually, his his wife is on camera as well, talking about the the medical reports went missing. The hospital wouldn't cooperate in handing them over. I mean, this really starts to smell like a cover up. Well, even uh, the body quickly, the body itself. When there was that point where you say that, well, the body was quickly moved out of the hospital and everything was was wrapped up very quickly. And that, was that because the body itself was a danger to other people? They wanted to put him in the ground as quickly as possible. And you can speculate all you want about it, why, but I would imagine they were concerned that whatever he came in contact with could be a danger to, to others. Yeah, right. Can I just say, this being the Brazilian Roswell, this case is way more interesting than Roswell. Isn't it? <laughs> like a thousand times more interesting, more compelling. And, and what, what makes this so fascinating is that there's not only this one case of uh, military personnel capturing the creature, there's two captures so another creature is captured. Tell us how that took place. So reports were pouring in that day. It was the January 20th of, you know, no one thought, no one said E.T., no one thought E.T. These strange creatures is what people pretty much were reporting. And in Brazil, the police department as well as the fire department are connected to the military. So the fire department were called anytime there's a wild animal on the loose, people would call the fire department, they would come and capture it. The fire department was called. There were people in the town saying there was some strange creature running around. And uh, so the fire department was involved and they captured one of these creatures as well. And I believe, I'm not totally definitive on this one, but according to one of off the record, an anonymous fire men shared with us that that one was shot and it was it was captured it was uh, not alive but the one that marco cherizi caught was alive and remained alive and later on i mean this just starts this is what i'm talking about with your filmmaking by this stage we're completely drawn into the story 
and you just start adding layer upon layer of eyewitnesses who are adding more elements to this. You end up interviewing the radiologist who did the x-rays. That really stood out. Who was this guy? So that guy, we learned about him back in 2013, but he was still working at the hospital and he wanted nothing to do with us. But one of his, he had shared apparently the story with one of his students. And that student came, met with my friend Marco Leal. That's how we initially learned about him. And it was from 2013, 2014, about six years of constantly, and he would block Marco. Marco would go to the hospital. Uh, He would meet kind of off the record. He said, I'm never going on the record. I'm never talking about this publicly. So you wore him down, basically. (laughs) Funny enough, after we did the interview with him, he thanked us at the end. And he said, I've been shouldering this for 26 years. I'm so happy to finally get this off my chest. Wow. I would imagine it would have an emotional release. And that coincides with what happened to Carlos, because you have this scene where you've gotten back in contact with Carlos. He's sitting in the back of this SUV and you're driving up to try and find the site of where the crash initially took place. And I must say, there's this air of uh, cynicism that sometimes, you know, pops up with me where I was like, because he couldn't find it. I know 26 years had passed, but he couldn't find it. He was like, oh, I'm not so sure. And you could tell I'm thinking, is this guy making it up? Is you know, He doesn't know where it is until he actually finds the site. And he almost has an emotional breakdown. You can, It's visceral. You can mm. see his entire demeanor completely change. And there's like this sudden release of emotion for what he saw that day. We barely got that on camera because uh, everything happened in real time. Nothing was staged. Everything was unraveling as yeah, it did. You can tell. As it was captured. And I remember the cameraman, David West, and he was yelling at me, slow down, you know, slow down. And I said, look, I, you know, we have to go with this. It, you know, you, you have to keep up. And we kept saying to Carlos, because I was feeling quite discouraged because it was quite a bit of time. I thought, how could this guy not remember where the bloody crash site was? Yeah. yeah. And we were, things had changed, the scenery had changed. They bulldozed the spot. Trees had grown, trees had, trees had been cut. And, um, but there was one thing that he kept saying that there was a small white house that you could see. So I took my drone and I flew my drone up above that site. This is not in the film. And I spotted behind a grove of trees, a small white house. So I thought this has got to be it. So then I took Carlos down to this other last spot. We were kind of at the end of our rope at that point. And that's when Carlos realized that that was the place where it happened. That's awesome. There's this little scene in the credits. I don't know if you saw this, Aaron, but after the credits start rolling, there's a scene of Carlos and he just does this huge kind of sigh and then he makes the motion of, it's off my shoulders. Yeah. It's finally off yeah. my shoulders. And he just looks so relieved to tell his story. Well, let's well, let's go back to this radiologist that you managed to interview. Eventually, he wanted to talk. Um, he did these x-rays. What what did he see on the x-rays? And how was this organized? Was this all run by the military? How did this take place? He was uh, just another day at the hospital. And all of a sudden, these military trucks arrived with police. And they took over the hospital. And they said, this is what you're going to be doing. Uh, you'll be taking these x-rays. And it had uh, uh, something in a, in, a, in a black body bag. Not human size, but a little smaller. And... Uh, they said, you take 
a, a series of x-rays. You were not allowed to process. He had to hand over the, the x-rays directly to the military. They were under armed guard, uh, both in the room and outside the room. Uh, there was a big military presence. And you're not to talk about this. This never happened. We never came. This sort of thing. Very threatening. He performed his duties, and that was the end of it. But he described that same smell. He said it just stayed in the hospital for days. They cleaned, they scrubbed, they sanitized. And he said it was in his nasal cavity just for days. What did he say about the x-rays? Did he actually see what they conveyed? Only time in his entire career where he was not allowed to look at the x-rays. Oh my gosh, yeah, right. And speaking of the uh, hospital eyewitnesses, you managed to get an interview with another military officer who wanted to remain anonymous. He He's referred to as Military X in the film. Uh, and he was in the, the hospital as well. Uh, what did he have to say? So he was identified and actually gave a testimony to a Brazilian researcher, which I, I, I can't release his name, uh, back in 1996. And I think that he did it out of his own safety, that if anything happened to him, the tapes of this interview would be released to the public. But those tapes remained, even though we were aware of their presence, we knew roughly who this guy was. He was in hiding for 26 years. Marco, along with some other Brazilian researchers, were able to locate him. And he said that uh, up until weeks of our arrival, he's, no amount of money was going to get him to come forward ever. Somehow a window opened. We met with him late one night. Uh, no cameras rolling in a, at a location four hours to the north of Virginia and uh, looked him in the eye. And, and, and to my complete uh, amazement, he agreed to give one final statement on, on his involvement with the case. It's incredible how there's so much reluctance with all these eyewitnesses which just goes to show there's, there, there's some validity to what, what they're talking about. It's not like they're throwing their story out there. They're all reluctant until their conscience gets them in the, in the final moment. Well, what did he have to say when he was in the hospital? What did he see? So one thing that I need to make abundantly clear is that there wasn't a single witness that didn't take years of coaxing, pressuring, begging, pleading, uh, to come forward. None of these witnesses, not a single one of them wanted to come forward. We found them and p pleaded with them to go on the record and, and give their piece of the puzzle. This military ex's involvement was he transported this being from Humanitas Hospital to, uh, he saw it, first saw it in the, in the hospital from the, knee, from the knees down in a casket on the table along with other military and doctors uh, and the like, he quickly realized that uh, he felt, I guess he described it as being in over his head. When he saw it, he was scared. What was going on? What is this? What am I doing here? What is this operation? And he transported this being from Humanitas Hospital to a place uh, as a military base for one night. It sat overnight. The next morning, the mission continued, and he took it to the following day to Campinas, and uh, that is where some of the brightest minds in science are in, in the country of Brazil. Apparently, according to him, they studied it for a day or two, and the Americans came. And he said they didn't have the facilities, the know-how, or whatever it was, 
to further the research. And the Americans took over and they flew an airplane into Campinas on the 22nd of January. We have the radar operator talking about the, the flight uh, and picked up the debris and, and the beans and went back to the United States. And that, you know, I didn't know this. I mean, when when I went there, we'd, we'd, we didn't know the Americans in, were involved. And we learned that through witness testimony, both military and, and civilian. Yeah, there was a great section in the film where you you find some eyewitnesses uh, who I, I believe it was a family of doctors and very respectable local family. And this was very evident that they didn't want to talk to you. There's a scene in the film where, you know, you're just going back and forth. You're offering to blur out their faces, film from them from behind, and they're still very wary. But ultimately, they do tell their story. And they describe seeing a, a disc in the sky, a flying saucer in the sky for an incredible amount of time, 15 minutes. But it was what they said occurred afterwards, again, that perked my interest, that they were visited by Americans. You know... That scene uh, was one of those gotcha wow moments for us because we were in the edit room and I turned to one of my fellow producers and I said, wait a minute, where did this family live again? And he said, you know, James, I think you might have gotten some aerial photography from the both capture site and the encounter site. And you went up high enough to actually film where these this family lived. This family was only four blocks away from both the encounter and the capture site, four, five, six blocks, something like this. And it was late at night. They were looking at a disc and they were absolutely adamant that it was looking for something. And I kept saying, what do you mean looking for something? How did you know it was looking for something? They said it because it was doing a grid search. It was in the air for 15 minutes. They said they watched it for 15 minutes. And I suddenly realized and I don't think very many people are going to get this part of the, of the film, those were probably a, an attempt to recover their fellow... Um, it was a rescue. Uh, it was a rescue, exactly. Yeah, it, it had to be. It had to be. Yeah, as I was going and watching this, I'm like thinking, is this a rescue? Is that what it was trying to do? Because the craft sounded to be different because the initial craft was described by you know the farm witnesses and Carlos as being like a, a minibus, like a mini school bus. Whereas what yes. they described was this red sphere and a disc-shaped kind of object. Yes, yes, exactly. So I'm convinced that that, that was a, a attempted recovery. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And later this family's visited by, and it clarified this for me, was it men in black type characters or was it P Americans posing as UFO investigators? I, I wasn't quite sure. They were uh, Americans. They said they were from NASA, but we don't think they were from NASA. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Give me a break. But they <laughs> said at the end of the interview that this interview never happened. We ne we were never here. Yeah. And that really caught the attention. And funny enough, when we showed up at this family's house, they said, oh, no, 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 we're not going on camera. No, we said we'd share our story, but not on camera. Well, I didn't understand what was happening because I don't speak Portuguese. I was doing my best in the field. I do speak French and a little Spanish. So I was doing my best to interpret what was being said. But I didn't understand. The family was saying, under no circumstances are we going on camera. And I kept saying, okay, we'll give them two options. One, we'll blur their faces. Two, we film them to the backside. <laughs> and, you know, they were saying, no, 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 we're not going on camera at all. And eventually we, we, we convinced them, thank God, to go on camera. Because I think that provides another fresh element to the story. As it does. well as... Mm. The, the overhead shot from the drone that shows proximity to 
both the encounter and the capture site. And that's what you do so well in this documentary, because it adds this element of being able to visualize and orient yourself in each and every one of these incidents. So you can kind of see how well they're connected. And I am intrigued, James, if you're possibly considering the next documentary you do, because I know you mentioned Men in Black there and you've you know heard the stories, but you haven't really gone into it. After being hardened, like you and I have been, Ben, for many years and hearing these stories, the moment that we heard them describing, this family describing that these men in black have shown up, you and I both had the same comment, Ben. We're like, they're probably not human. And I'm wondering, I know that's a little bit extreme yeah. from the idea of men in black, but I'm wondering if your, your next documentary may delve into the concept of these men in black that are, seem to continuously harass witnesses to stop them from spreading these stories. Yeah, what do you think it is, James? Do you think it's a, a human agency behind these intimidating visits? Is it the, the connected with the Americans who eventually took the these entities? Or is it something else? So dating back to 1950, there was a very good case involving a couple of farmers in McMinnville, Oregon. It was Evelyn Trent and her husband, Paul Trent, and they saw a disc-shaped craft. It's very famous photographs. You can look them up. Trent, 1950. McMinnville, Oregon. And I was given an interview with Evelyn Trent um, that she did in the 80s, obviously before she died. And she described these men, a man that showed up at her house, tried to confiscate the uh, negatives of uh, the of the photographs, the, the the several photographs that she took, her husband took of this UFO, forcefully ransacked her house. Was quite intimidating, very rude, and forceful. And uh, she describes this in an interview in the eighties about that. So that was the first time I'd heard of these so-called men in black or men in dark suits from an unknown government agency. And then I heard more accounts in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 2000s. And I'm now convinced that these men exist. Do they come from an unknown government military agency, perhaps? Are they something else? I, I really don't know. Mm. I mean, it had the hallmarks of some of those famous uh, men in black cases. Well, the car with, disappears. With the mother. I mean, the mother of those young girls that saw the entity on, on that block, She, she after that visit she had, she said she quickly rushed out to see what car they were driving and it was gone. And it, the way it was portrayed in the film, I don't know if this is exactly the case, but it, it seemed that, as though she was suggesting that it was strange that the car had left so quickly, that it had vanished so quickly. Was, was that what she was trying to say? That's exactly what she was trying to say. And Carlos said the same thing. Yeah, They were there one minute and gone the next. And with no license plate on the car either. Yeah, and now, now there are a number of um, Brazilian researchers. Claudio Covo, unfortunately he died. There's another guy named Vector Pacacini and another Obidajara Rodriguez. And those were like the three, there were others, but those were the three primary uh, researchers into this case. And I heard from other witnesses that they had uh, strange vehicles, their wives were had encounters with just people that were watching them, letting it be known that they were being watched and intimidated. And Pacacini and Ubidojara have gone silent since I think about 2005. They might be coming back online, but there's very good evidence 
compelling testimonies to suggest that they too were intimidated. I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. Yeah, there appears to be a lot of silencing that was taking place, you know, for these witnesses. And there's this one part in the film where uh, I believe you were talking to a soldier who was allegedly involved in the transport of these uh, metal boxes or this metal box that contained this being. But there's this one point where he describes that uh, connected to the army base, the ASA um, army base, or ESA army base, I'm sorry. ESA, yeah, yeah, ESA, yeah. His uh, colleagues that were involved in the transport all disappeared. All vanished. They were all relocated, disappeared, gone. Yeah. Yeah, I know. The the intimidation is quite clear when you eventually track down Lopes, the the military officer who Eric. drove the vehicle for this the one of the captures of these entities. Uh, he's been, you know, incommunicado for what twenty six years or so. Uh, and there's this great scene where you guys are driving up to his his house. Um, and kind of going in there with the cameras. And I think you were expecting that the interview was all set up. You're going to talk to this guy. And it didn't go as planned, did it? What happened? So uh, I think that's probably as close as I've ever been to having gotten shot. Mm. Well, you could tell you couldn't speak Portuguese in this scene. And yeah. threatening. Yeah. And you're just like, what? Yeah. Uh, my translators failed to tell me <laughs> just how, you know, how, how close I came to being shot in the face. And, and, and uh, so let me back up a little bit. When, uh, when I went to Virginia, to our amazement, we got an interview with the mayor, not a retired mayor, the current mayor, Mayor Verge. And uh, at the end of the interview, we were sort of walking and talking, getting some B-roll. <clears throat> and I said to one of my translators, I said, hey, um, ask him, he's the mayor. This guy's got some weight. Would he be willing to help us locate a few additional witnesses, maybe get a statement from the local military base? Would he pull out his Rolodex and make some calls on our behalf? And he agreed. And so I wanted to talk with Eric Lopes Eric Lopes is the only remaining survivor of either the first or the second capture with Marco Cherizzi when they when Marco jumped le- leaped out of the car and grabbed this creature. But even the family of Marco Cherizzi has never been able to get a statement from Eric Lopes, and that always surprised me that. Why has this guy been so silent? All he would have to do is come forward and just say, nothing happened, I was involved with nothing, I know nothing, but he's instead gone completely silent and refused to comment even to the family of his fellow officer, military officer, Marco Trezzi, who died that night. Or not that night, but a couple weeks later. So I asked the, the mayor if he would help us locate Eric Lopes, and he did. He got the address, and um, and we went to his house, just completely out of the blue. Nothing was prearranged. He did not know we were coming. Nobody had ever been able to get a statement from him. Um, but, hey, you know, we, we had to go for it. In my opinion, we had to go for it. And quite honestly, at the last minute, we'd met with some friends of the mayor. One was a lawyer. And one was the former chief of police in a slightly different district than uh, Virginia. I mean, it was close. I think it, I, I, not not far away. And the father said, the former chief of police said, uh, 
I can't go there. I have an, I have another engagement. But my son, who's a lawyer, uh, he can he can escort you and take you to Eric Lopes's house. And just as we were leaving, we were literally going to follow him. I stopped and I ran up to his car with a translator and I said, "Would you mind walking up to the house with us?" Honestly, I really believe that had I not done that. I might have been shot right on the spot. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe you. I definitely believe you. Well, at first, didn't he behave like he wasn't even that person? He was kind of like talking with some until finally you said, well, we're looking for Eric. He's like, I am Eric. Yeah, so so the first thing he said was, uh, we never asked this question. All I think the lawyer, who's quite well known in the town of Virginia, I mean, I would hang out on the street with him and people were driving by and honking and waving. Very popular, well-known character. I think he used to be uh, a politician, and now he's a lawyer. And he had known Eric Lopes as a child, hadn't seen him in 20 plus years. And so he knew him and Eric Lopes knew this guy. And when we arrived, I think the first thing he said was something like, I've, I'm with a documentary film crew from America. And he, Eric Lopes, said, if they're here to talk about the ET, I won't say a word, which is kind of funny because it's like yeah, he knew. It's like it's like the police arriving at your house. There's no drugs in here. It's yeah. like, wait a minute, we didn't ask you that question. Yeah. <laughs> it, the first that was the first thing out of his mouth is like, if they're here to talk about the ET, I'm not, it's not going to happen. So I thought, well, that's wow. Thank you for that information. <laughs> that's that's helpful. But um, yeah, Eric Lopes. That was a very very. I've never in all my years, had any encounter like that on camera uh, ever. Yeah, it was very tense. It was very tense. Well, and he was going to escort you out with bullets, I think, was the one of the terms used. Yeah. But one of, the, one of the things that's difficult to convey in the movie is I was standing probably the closest to him. The people that spoke Portuguese were right on the edge of dipping behind the wall. They clearly knew that something terrible could happen at any moment. I was in plain sight right yes. in front of him. Yeah, just a and I, could, I, 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 And I was looking at this man's face, and I didn't know it was Eric Lopes. I didn't know. I'd never seen Eric Lopes. But I'm looking at this man's face, and I could feel that this man had been harboring something. He'd been shouldering something, burdened with something for decades. I've never seen a face like it. It looked so deeply and profoundly troubled. I, I, I'll never forget it. It left this indelible impression. I've got this little film strip of my mind. Unfortunately, the cameraman didn't quite have the lens needed, and he was having a difficult time trying to zoom in on this face, and it kept going out of focus, and everything was very tense. And um, But I saw him, and I looked him in the eyes, and I thought, I've never seen a face quite like this. Not just the face, but what the face looked like it was had been hiding or burdened with. Someone or something got to him. It, yo, clearly, absolutely, yeah. But, but look, you know, every every witness that we talked to had been either visited or threatened, every one of them. Well, James, thank you so much for going through the, the case for us. We thoroughly, th I cannot underline how much we enjoyed watching this and, and getting all these details. I think the strength of the eyewitnesses really speaks for itself in this, in this film. Uh, you've really brought the case to light with so many people stepping forward who, as you say, were just reluctant for years to, to go on the record. You've got, you've got them all here. 
going on camera. It really is phenomenal work. We've got to congratulate you. The film Moment of Contact is going live on Tuesday, October the 18th. It will be available on all good streaming platforms. And uh, is there any tickets left for the premiere? Because I know you're having a, a premiere in uh, the, uh, the Regal in L.A., on yes. Monday, October the 17th. Where can people get tickets for that? Yeah, well, I'll say one more thing before we wrap up, and that there there, there are certain aspects of this story that I can share uh, face-to-face that I, I'm not at liberty to discuss that, that basically uh, involve, you know, what many would consider the Holy Grail, uh, which would be, as I don't think I need to tell you, the Holy Grail of evidence that, you know, we're, Going after a body, uh, a body. That's what you uh, mean, yeah. right? Evidence, you know, evidence. Okay. <laughs> yeah, very cagey. Uh, uh, but uh, no, I'm just saying that if 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 people do want to, because everyone's been pestering about me about you know there must be photographic evidence. It's like, well, I can talk to you more about that face to face. Oh, but, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Okay, because yeah. you do say that at the in the text at the end of the film that there is video and photographic evidence out there, and that's what you're seeking. Is that right? Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, right. yeah. You got and, us and there's, intrigued. There's, there's. I, I, I'm not trying to play coy or or be elusive. I'm really not. I just, yeah. Uh, but well, it's something uh, that you just, could tell people personally, but it's also something you could reveal on an Australian podcast that's listened uh, by <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs> Wouldn't well, you just, say? <laughs> just know that we're doing everything in our power. If if, if I could speak hypothetically for a sure. moment. <laughs> If you did uh, locate something, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can get your hands on it. That's another element, mm. another aspect that uh, we're grappling. That's intriguing. Um, but getting back to the premiere, so we are, we just got up, we had almost no seats left. So I contacted Regal and I said, desperately, I said, look, I'm doing radio. We're putting out flyers and uh, a PR from our PR firm Falco in New York. And we're almost sold out and it's only been a few days. And so they gave us a bigger theater. Oh, great. Same location. So we're having a, a premiere on the 17th of October, 6.30 p.m., at LA Live in downtown Los Angeles. So hopefully any listeners that are in the United States or in the state of California, hopefully you can come join us. Be most of them. Most of you guys are in California from the stats I've been looking at recently. So I'm sure we'll be able to send some people your way. I'm in Vermont now, so I got to travel oh. 3,000 miles to get there. <laughs> for your own premiere, okay. <laughs> I know, for my own premiere. Well, I know. We'll, we'll tweet it out today and uh, closer to the date as well. And again, congratulations on such a brilliant film. Yes, we, thank we you. We thoroughly enjoyed it. We'll be singing its praises for a while and uh, we wish you the best. Can't wait to have you back for your next project. Is, is there anything else that you're, you're working on that you can allude us to? I'm starting filming. I'm going to basically, as a continuation, because I learned that the evidence, that the bodies, the alleged bodies, the crash debris went to the United States. So I'm going to go on the hunt, uh, walk the halls of Congress, talk to members of the task force, intelligence community, and I really want to stick my teeth in and find out where this stuff is and who has the authority to release it. I'm going to start filming in November. Watch wow. your back, James. Uh, yeah, I best know. Best of well, luck. Best of luck. Uh, best of luck. <laughs> oh, we yeah. can't wait to hear more about that. Well, yeah, we can't wait to hear more from you, James. Th- thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you. Gentlemen, thank you so much. That really warms my heart. I appreciate it very much. And I want to thank all the fellow Brazilian UFO researchers that have contributed to making this film a reality. Thank you.
Huge thanks to James Fox again for appearing on the show. The film will be available on the 18th on all good streaming platforms. We'll link to all of them in our show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org. And if you haven't already seen The Phenomenon, James's other film from 2020, check that out as well. We'll link to that uh, also. And just what a pleasure to have him back on the show. He's always yep. great at you know giving a nice overview of what the story is about. But uh, you, we, we were just so impressed with the film, weren't we? Well, I think, and I said to James this, you know, while we're off air there, this particular documentary, the reason why I feel like it stands out you know, above so many other documentaries is because normally when you've got someone going to see a UFO documentary, they're inclined to already believe in that kind of stuff. They're inclined to be you know, interested in it anyway. That's why you're watching it. This is the kind of documentary that you can take and just give to anyone yeah. who has got no <laughs> knowledge of it, even skeptical about this stuff. And you start to understand that there's something going on here. There was a cover up. The military was involved. Something very strange did indeed take place. But what that is, obviously, it's difficult to comprehend. Well, James shared with this uh, off air, there's been some developments in the case. So mm. I, I don't think we've heard the end of the Virginia case in 2022. I think that we may see some more coming out about this next year. Uh, and some exciting things are afoot, especially new witnesses and things like that. You're absolutely right. I think things are, you know, changing and we're now living in this new climate. You know, we've had the US Navy, you know, those videos be released. The, the atmosphere amongst, I guess, the general population in regards to UFOs is changing. People are starting to understand that there are things going on that are uh, certainly seemingly off-world. And I think that because with this, I mean, this happened in 1996, it's so much more recent than Roswell. Roswell, I think, as much as that's a compelling and intriguing case, it's so far mm. in the past that to most people, it's not that relevant. This is in recent history. Well, it, it indicates a bunch of things. If, if the story as told by the eyewitnesses is correct, as we heard it, then it implies that there is an element within the United States security apparatus that is aware of these craft when they go down yes, and is kind of tapped into the world's militaries, the goings on in the world so that they can be there to, uh, I guess, take whatever's retrieved, to take bodies, to take craft, cr crashed craft. It, again, it ties into this idea that uh, the, the United States military industrial world or whatever division of the United States, you know, intelligence apparatus is, is in control of the secret. phenomenon. Yeah, there's some aspect of it that has been actively looking at the phenomenon, trying to gather information on the phenomenon and seems to know when they need to be there to collect. Yes. Yeah, allegedly, according to some reports, and we're going to go into this in our plus extension because this documentary really reinvigorated my, you know, appreciation for the idea that there is some group that is moving amongst ufological circles that is monitoring our airspace and is always intervening and threatening witnesses, whether it's men in black, whether it's an intelligence group, I don't know whether it's the military, who knows. But it appears that there is a history in Brazil of foreign powers, most likely the Americans intervening when there's been some type of UFO activity over Brazil. And there's been a lot of weird UFO activity over Brazil for many decades. Do you have more of that coming up? In I plus? do. We're going to be going into some of that in our plus extension we'll coming up after the break. Tell us what's coming up. Well, exactly that. We're going to go into some cases that uh, precede what happened with this particular crash that set the scene for some type of, uh, you know, basic influence, a foreign influence that has been monitoring ufological activity internationally for a very long time. I'm also going to go into some cases of other UFO crashes that tie in with this, 
Well, something that's very important to this particular case is the biological contaminant angle. You know, the fact that that soldier ended up dying from a collapsed immune system after interacting with that being. There's a whole heap of other cases where people have interacted with UFOs and ultimately it's ended up being deadly, but in very strange ways. There's also mutilations. We're going to go into a cover-up, again, suggesting that someone knows, someone in the in the government knows that people are being mutilated, allegedly, and that's being covered up. You so know, like cattle mutilations. Like cattle but mutilations, but for people. people, links in with missing person reports. Uh, and then, of course, I retrieve, after we threw this book at the air hostess, only plus members will understand what the reference to that is, <laughs> I managed to recover the book. <laughs> And I'm going to go into some of the wild stories, which include uh, psychic echoes, uh, people picking up on premonitions well before you know they take place, uh, psychic paintings, that kind of stuff. High quality, thirty cent paperback. High material. quality, hot, scalding chaff. It's like it's been <laughs> dropped out of a burning UFO crash, and it's going to scald your ears. Well, make sure you check out the film again, Moment of Contact, The Roswell of Brazil, coming out on the 18th. Definitely worth your time. We'll link to everything in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org. And make sure you check out our Plus membership, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. We've got those exclusive extensions we do on every single show on Friday. Huge extensions. Sometimes the show is, is double the length if you include the extension. You also get an exclusive show on Tuesdays, exclusive to Plus members as well. Uh, Plus members also get a higher quality MP3 for the show, a totally ad-free version of the show as well. And if you sign up for ME Max, you get access to our entire back catalogue of shows, more than a decade worth of shows there in our back catalogue. Sign up today, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. All the details are there. That's a wrap for this free edition of Mysterious Universe. Thanks for listening. If you're on Plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break.